0: Uh, teaching in this auditorium is disorienting me. And uh, so I'll I'll blame it on temporary insanity for that. So the first 10 minutes, I hope somebody else has that down. uh, I hope you have that down mentally because you won't get a hearing again. Okay, but let's look at verses 23 through 29. Moses asked to go to the promised land. In verse 23, I also pleaded with the Lord at that time, O Lord, You have begun to show Your servant, Your greatness, and Your strong hand For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as Yours. God, who can do the kind of things... That you do. I put, I wanted to call attention to the fact, on chapter 4, verses 1-8, through eight, on this um, telestrator thing, I, I put what God, and I did not capitalize God. And that's a hard decision to make. But when he is comparing all the gods of the nations... He is talking about gods that are no gods and asking them to compete with a true god. That, that's why I did it. I didn't mean to do it out of irreverence, lest you think that. But but here the same thing in the New American Standard. This is not capitalized in verse twenty four. What God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works? And my acts is yours. Let me, I pray, cross over and see the fair land that's beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. And the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not let listen to me. And He said to me, "Enough! Speak no more of this." So in verse twenty-seven, He goes to the top of Pisgah and He views the promised land. Now, I want to make a point here that I will admit as I'm making this point, I don't know what to do with it. Sometimes you make a point, and you know you can the conclusion is obvious, uh, but this is not one of them. The word which is used in chapter three and verse twenty five and verse twenty seven cross. The Hebrew word that is used here is the same word that is used in 326 when the Bible says the Lord was angry with me. Because of you. <clears throat> Moses is asking that he cross over in the Jordan, but he says the Lord was angry. Angry, or you could translate that, I suppose. The Lord was cross at me. Now, what do you do with that? Think about it and tell me. And I will try to make a good point of that someday. But I don't know what the exact conclusion is. And uh, just spend some time thinking about it. This is a song that we sing sometimes. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, may I thy consolation share. Till from Mount Pisgah's lofty height I view my home and take my flight, this robe of flesh I'll drop and rise to seize the everlasting prize and shout while passing through the air. Farewell. Farewell, sweet hour of prayer. It's the last verse of that song. The reason it uses Mount Pisgah is because this is where Moses views the promised land. And Moses viewing the promised land is described in this psalm as a picture of us anticipating heaven... And we are viewed as figuratively viewing our home and taking our flight from this mount. I will say that the writers of these hymns had a profound knowledge of the Bible. Which is going to be appreciated. We will appreciate those songs more as we know these texts. And know what's going on. Now... I wanted to get over that quickly, and so I'm not going to be hurt if there are no questions or ideas there as we try to get to chapter four. But any thoughts, real fast? Any thoughts you have? Yes. Well, you're talking about the word of the cross. We use that in two different ways as well. Mm-hmm. And so it may be. Yes, and and I want to look that up. And I did not trace how many times this word is translated angry because it is usually translated just cross, like get to the other side. But you're right, we do that in English as well. Tony?
1: Uh, Just the next mountain over in Nebo where he actually did his earthly.
0: Yes, and also it's, it's associated with these things right before his death. Yes, yes. It's, not Very like,
1: good. it's not like that That location, though, is that different, though, that this is where you are dropping your earthly realm to go to. Yes. yes, yes. It's also a good example, the, the, the kind of moments here, of the fact that one can be forgiven... But it doesn't always mean that the consequences will be removed. Yes. And I think even today, yeah. that's something that we have to realize and remember. You know, people will, will want to accuse God because consequences are still there. But, you know, sin has its consequences. Yes. Even though God has
0: the ability to forgive yes. That exactly right. And um, you're exactly right. And we do see illustrations of that here. We see illustrations of it in the life of David. And all through all through the Bible, so see.
1: Um, in verse twenty-four, O oh Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. And a part of me is going, "Wait, you're just now figuring out that there's you know you've been hanging out with God for quite a while and seeing some magnificent." And you're saying you've just begun, or is it more? I now realize this is just the smallest taste of what it is
0: that.: I, th- I think it's the latter. I, I think the emphasis is on the fact that there is so much to see of God's greatness and glory that we only see the smallest of glimpses. And that's the point, I think, in Exodus 33 of God putting Moses in the rock and covering him with his hand. And you will see my backward parts, but you'll not see my face, for no man can see my face and live. In all his glory, in all his power, we cannot see God. We catch only a little of the glimpses that can be seen. So, so yes, uh, Anne-Marie... And Yeah, that, that, is a, that is a question as Moses three times refers to the fact the Lord is angry with me and he says, it, he says it pretty much this way each time in 137 the Lord was angry with me also on your account he says it this way in 326 and then in chapter 4 verse 21 the Lord was angry with me on your account so each time he attributes to the people I, I really don't think he's not taking personal responsibility, and, and I'm saying that not just based on those comments, but the whole career of Moses and seeing all that we, we see and know of him. I think he is showing the people that you know that you that you do bear blame in this as well, and and certainly they did. I'll tell you what: if I were Moses, I would have started a new congregation. You know, I would have. You know, we would have taken a group. We would have started, and but but that is not what he gets to do. You know, because it is a. uh, But I I understand the question, but but I don't think in light of all we see of him that that is the case.
1: I think this is a good also segue into the next few chapters of of talking about commands and make sure that you're you got yourself right with God of. He, like before this is talking about them inheriting the land and they can sound great and all but even Moses is saying even I am not allowed to enter this land because yeah. of some disobedience and so therefore don't get it twisted with God just because he's given you an inheritance now you need to be careful and the, the very next chapter or instead of a chapter break the very next section is about them they, making sure that they, they, they know who God is and that they obey him
0: that last section that I mentioned in 421 and 22 makes the point you're making, Tom. It makes the point that, you know, Moses, the reason Moses is referring to his circumstance and his situation is a warning to them. Because, you know, be careful. Um...
1: Pay attention to this next part. Yeah. Don't just remember that, oh, we got some inheritance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that next part we have
0: to That's right. They've got to, they've got to listen to what the Lord is saying. I love Deuteronomy 4, and I know whatever we do, and I, and I hope we can uh, do well, but, but, I, but I know we can't do it justice completely. But he begins by saying, now Israel listen. And the word listen is the same word that's translated here, sometimes like hear, O Israel, in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. It's the same word, and um, but but Israel is called, listen to the statutes and judgments which I'm teaching you to perform in order that you may live and go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God, the Lord, the God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. I know you're familiar with that statement. You see it here. You see it in Deuteronomy 12.32. You see it, of course, a similar idea in Revelation 22, 19, and 20. It is interesting, as we pointed out a few weeks ago when we started Deuteronomy, that their ancient Near Eastern covenants often had the same qualities that this covenant with Israel had, those covenants too often had provisions like this. Don't add to the words of this covenant. Don't take from the words of this covenant. And this is exactly what's happening here. Don't add to it. Don't take from it. Listen to what I've said. In verse 3, your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case... Of Bel for all the men who follow Bel the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. Bel Peor, what is it for you? Numbers people, you were in numbers last quarter. Balaam, Balaam was behind all of that. Numbers twenty-five, Midianite, Moabite women committing adultery with the Israelite men, and they were the Israelite men were bowing down to their gods. And the text tells us those who committed this deed, they have been destroyed from among you. Remember, Numbers twenty-five tells us twenty-four thousand died in that particular process. Those who committed this sin died. But it says in verse 4, But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. Remember, one of the provisions of these covenants was to have blessings and curses. Blessings if you're obedient, curses if you're disobedient. Here, these curses and these blessings were worked out immediately to show the people, if you don't listen, if you don't listen to God... He says, These people didn't, and the Lord destroyed them. But you who held fast, you're still alive. In verse 5, see, I called you sanctions and judgment, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you're entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding. In the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statues and say, Surely this is a great this great nation is a wise and understanding people, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God wherever we call on them? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole which I am setting before you today? What nation has instructions? What nation has a law as great as you have? This is what one writer said on this verse. Israel lived on an open stage before a watching world obedience to God would ensure not only the success of the covenant but would display God's greatness and God's wisdom before the nation. Now let me ask you, Is that any different for us today? Do we live on an open stage before the world? And if we live out the things that God says? Does it allow people to see our life and praise God as Matthew 5, 16 talks about? Here they say, what nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God wherever we call? I know that the words of verses 6-8 may sound like the nation is looking for credit. There's no nation like Israel. But but no, I don't think that's the way it is. I, I think there's no nation like Israel because there's no God like Israel's God. This is what Moses had said in Exodus 33, 15 and 16. Moses said to God, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, so that we and I, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all other people who are upon the face of the earth? What distinguished Israel from all other people? What distinguished Israel from all other people is the presence of God. What's going to distinguish us? It's not going to be necessarily our personality. It's not going to be our skill in a particular field. It is going to be the presence of our God. And God's hope was that Israel's obedience to Him will be a testimony before all peoples and all nations of His greatness And of the great law and revelation, he has given them. I have written in my Bible, Ezra 7, verse 25, beside of verses 6 and 7. When Ezra was going back to teach the people the law around 457 B.C., he said in Ezra chapter 7, verse 25, you Ezra according to the wisdom of your God which is in your hand he's talking about the law the wisdom of God in your hand we have ready access to God's wisdom God's understanding may we drink deeply of that now I have to admit I'm rushing on because I want to stress this next point. In this historical prologue, God is going to recall his past dealings with the people of Israel. He is going to refer to the events of Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And as he refers to these events of Mount Horeb, He's going to emphasize what happened at Mount Horeb and how God appeared and spoke to them from the midst of the fire. But one of the things he's going to say, he says, don't forget what you saw and don't forget what you didn't see. Don't forget what you didn't see. That's going to be a very important point. Because in many ways, the sin of the Old Testament is idolatry. And God's been warning these days. When
1: we come into the presence of God, if, you, if we can come into the presence of this God and be bored with it or fall asleep, then I question if we know the God of the Father. Because he has never appeared that he hasn't been something dramatic. He's a consuming, he he set things on fire, he instills fear, he instills love and mercy. It's been so dramatic every time he's present that I would question if I could be in his presence if I didn't recognize how dramatic he
0: is. Well, we we need to be all by him, which is your point. And I totally agree. Um, there, there may be certain events in life where the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Uh, i observe observed that sometimes in the audience. Um, as far as the sleeping part. But, uh, but uh, you know, but you're right. We've got to stand in awe of who he is, of his glory, of his grand. And I think this passage does that. He says in verse 9, Give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, so you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen. And they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, and make them known to your sons and grandsons. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may lurk, that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and they may teach their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain and the mountain burned with fire, to the very heart of the heavens. Darkness cloud and thick gloom, then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire, you heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. Okay, look at verse 10, verse 10, there are a couple of reasons for God's awesome appearance on Mount Sinai. It's, it's discussed in Exodus 19 and 20. It's discussed a little bit here. That expression used in verse 11, darkness, cloud, thick room, it's not used in Exodus 18 or 19 and 20, but it is used here. But anyway, Exodus, Deuteronomy 4 10. God said, He assembled the people, He spoke to them that they may learn to fear Me. They learn to fear me. They hear the words of God. They hear the voice of God speaking from the fire. They are awed, as uh, none is saying. And when they are awed by Him, then uh, they're learning to fear him. There's going to be two times in the book, Deuteronomy 17 when the Bible's talking about the kings and Deuteronomy 31 when the Bible talks about reading the law to all the people, that there's a connection between reading the words of God and fearing God. Do you want to fear God? Do you want to stand in awe of Him? Read the book. He said, I did this so that you might fear me, that you might stand in awe of me, and that you might teach your children. There's going to be a lot of emphasis in Deuteronomy on teaching our children and our children's children. As 4.25 will mention this again. Deuteronomy 6 will try to pound this home. But try to envision the circumstances at Mount Sinai. Try to envision this. As the people are at the foot of Mount Sinai, and the Bible here uses these expressions, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. The Bible says that the smoke was going up like the smoke of a furnace in Exodus 19. And there was the sound as of a loud trumpet blaring. Hebrews 12 will comment on this. And Moses himself says that he's overwhelmed with fear. God said, remember all these things. Because He wants the people to stand in awe of Him. But He said also, in verse 12, He said, on that day, you saw no form. You only heard a voice. Look at verse 15. Watch yourself carefully since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire. And by the way, three times in this chapter, it's going to be emphasized that God spoke from the midst of the fire. Verse 12, verse 15, verse um, 33. It's going to be emphasized. But... Our main point remember what you didn't see Israel was unique in the ancient near east in the fact that they did not build an image and use it in worship to their god they're the only nation that we know of to this point in history that did not make images or idols or weren't supposed to of course we know they did and that's a reason they went into captivity. But God says, remember what you heard, remember what you saw, and remember what you didn't see. Because there is always the temptation to make an idol that somehow represents God. Look at verse 16 through 18 and listen to how extensive these words are. Do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, and the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. He's saying don't make an idol of anything. Because no idol can adequately represent God in all His amazing glory. When Israel comes out of the land of Egypt, they say to Moses, as for this Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Make us a God who goes before him. Aaron takes their gold, fashions it into a calf. He says, this is your God, O Israel. Now, Probably that was more a violation of the second commandment than the first one. Because he says, tomorrow will you feast to the Lord. And he uses the word for Lord, Yahweh, the Lord in all capitals in your English translation. Now, uh, in that passage, he's probably violating the second commandment. The problem with idols is when you make an idol, it is going to limit your concept of God. And the Bible is, is very careful in telling this people who lived in this idolatrous nation, uh, lived, lived among the midst of idolatrous nations, excuse me, that they are not to have any image, any idol, they're not to worship anything except the Lord. And it is in this context That God emphasizes that he is a consuming fire and he is a jealous God. God tolerates no rival for our affection. In verse 19, not only do they not worship any of these images that they are to make. And by the way, if you look closely... At verses fourteen through verses sixteen through eighteen, it kind of reverses the order of Genesis one. The greatest of God's creation is male and female in Genesis one, and it starts there and it goes backwards to all the things that God made, and they are not to make an image in the likeness of any of these things. And then in verse nineteen, they are not made. They're not to worship the heavens, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Again, something that Israel did often. Um, God emphasizes in Genesis 1, he created the sun, moon, and stars. Why emphasize that? Well, he emphasizes it because he did it. But he also emphasizes it because they were worshipped as gods by many people in the ancient Near East. They were worshipped by God as God. But when they were worshipped as God's, God would say, No, don't worship them. Worship me who made them. Now, I know. I'm talking about people in the ancient world. All of us would be a lot smarter than that. Just a couple of days ago, I accidentally ran to a commercial he said, buy this book about your zodiac sign. It will teach you who you are and what you will be in life. Stars hold back that's Or God? As our culture rejects God, they're going to be open to anything. And open To all kinds of things like that, that we figure, that we think, as old. Who believes that? Unfortunately, some will. What thoughts do you all have, though? Bob? Well,
1: reading all that hearing all that, the wording that comes to my mind is the world.
0: Yes, Yes, you are exactly right. Romans 1 uses that language. They worship uh, the, creation, the creation and not the creator. And some of the things they worship, they worshiped in Romans one twenty three, the um, uh, flying animals and things like that, which, which are also mentioned in this text.
1: Uh, it's just a perspective on him bringing out the imagery of the uh, horse. And, uh, and all the things that they were to see and hear, only those of you know, the ages of 60 and 40 at this time would have even been able to have witnessed that. And the rest of them, over two-thirds of this congregation at this point, weren't even alive at that point. And so even if you consider uh, maybe kids under five may not really, really have good memory of that, you've got a huge portion of this congregation that never even saw these things. Mm-hmm. But it should have been so vivid for their parents to have told them. And that's why he has to emphasize this now, not just for that generation yeah. to have been told by those 40 to 60, that for them to then also the things that they will see and witness uh, of God conquering this, this people for them, uh, and that why why it is that a generation later then is no longer faithful.
0: And, and that is why it is so... Uh, important for us to try to communicate our faith, because there will be things, there will be events that they will not have seen. I want to tell you what was stunning to me uh, my last year of college that to realize the students I had were not alive. On September 11th of 2001. I, I, it, that is stunning to me. And those events that seem so real to us are forgotten. And that's just, and I just use that as an illustration to how quickly we can forget, like you're stating. Boy, did you have oh, a honey? To me, the ultimate example of this in our society mm mm-hmm. Yes, yes. He has he has been victorious over death, and the, the trouble with anything like that, it tends to limit, uh, It tends to limit uh, God in some ways, and we uh, don't want to limit Him. And look at all God has done for Israel in verse 20. The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt. The iron furnace. That is a way to picture the horrible situation in Egypt. You remember in the book of Numbers, the people kept wanting to go back. Why? The Lord delivered you from the iron furnace. He brought you to be a people... For his own possession. Now you may recognize that expression. That expression is going to be used in Deuteronomy several times. It's going to be used in seven six. It's going to be used in 14.2. It is going to be used in chapter 26. And I can give you these references um, later. But it's also used in Titus 2.14 to talk about our relationship to God presently. We are a people for His own possession. In verse 21, the Lord was angry with me on your account and swore that I would not cross the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as inheritance. For I shall die in this land, I shall not cross the Jordan, but you shall cross and take possession of this good land. This is like Anne and Tony were mentioning earlier. This is used as a warning to Israel. It can happen to you. But verse 23, Watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which He made for you. Make for your... And make for yourself a graven image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now Hebrews 12.29 will quote that phrase, God is a consuming fire. In context. This is a warning to Israel. It is a warning. You cannot make graven images of this God. This God who is greater than we can possibly uh, represent in anything that we make. Uh, We can't make graven images. He is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. God's jealousy is a proper jealousy because He desires so much the people that He has created. But... I want you to look... So so the fact God's a consuming fire is a warning. But let me ask you this question. Is there any comfort to knowing God as a consuming fire? Any
1: comfort? I mean, it, in one sense, He can consume you completely and burn away all of the bad parts of you and leave okay. refined, so in the sense of a refining fire.
0: Okay, he can he can do that, as 1 Peter 1, um, 6 and 7 talk about. Look at Deuteronomy 9. Deuteronomy 9, um, in Deuteronomy 9, verse 1, God tells Israel, you're crossing the Jordan today to go in and dispossess nations greater than... And mightier than you, and great cities fortified to heaven. They have cities well fortified. They have stronger people than you You have. They are mightier than you are. He even highlights the very people they were most afraid of. In verse 2, a people greatly tall... The sons of the Anakim whom you know and of whom you have heard it said who can stand before the sons of Anak. Know therefore today it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and will subdue them before you. The first Yes, that's right, that's right, Joshua 6. But the point is, it is a warning, so yes, it is used in the Bible to warn us against going into sin, but it is also stated in the Bible as a hopeful statement, as a blessing, as a promise that God is a consuming fire. Therefore, none of your enemies can stand before you. Just like we ask about other things and that we've asked before in classes and sermons. Does the fact that God knows everything, is that terrifying? Or is that assuring? (laughs) Both. Yeah, Sarah. Yes to both. It is terrifying that we can't do anything that escapes His attention. He knows all our sins. He knows all our shortcomings. But it's reassuring. Whether I sin to heaven... You are there. Whether I descend to Sheol, you are there. And Peter says, when Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. It's assuring or it's terrifying depending on our relationship with you. And maybe it's body. It's the same way about God as a consuming fire in our soul. Was it mine?
1: I love the paradox that we see here because in verse 20, right, he delivers them from the iron furnace. Yes. And in verse 24, he's a consuming body. So you get this image of, of both things. Met, but yet one is for your demise, and one is for your comfort and rest.
0: Yes. I was looking for somewhere I have written in my nose all the verses where the term fire is used in this passage. It's a whole lot. So just keep your eye open. But you're right. The, the contrast between verse 20 and verse 24. It's Bob. You know, sometimes when you
1: look at the word jealousy and you think
0: of it in the you know, you don't want to be jealous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, if... Well, gosh, she's she's she love her. Yeah. Care about her. Yes. That's why he about us. For his possession, sure. about us he's going to be jealous. And also another side of jealousy is protection. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yes. So all of these attributes of God can be reassuring. As we can't look at the worst examples of human jealousy and attribute those to God. Now, I want to tell you, I apologize that I didn't get as far as I would have liked. Okay, the same context that says, the same context that makes the statement that God is a consuming fire in 424. Tells us in verse thirty-one that God is compassionate. Same time Same holy God is both a consuming fire and He's compassionate. As we close, one thing to think about: we can compare Israel's covenant with ancient Near Eastern covenant. But I want to say this: if you rebelled against one of these great kings. Who entered a covenant with you in the ancient Near East? Don't expect any mercy. God says, even when you have sinned and you've broken your covenant, and I have brought about the greatest curses of the covenant, I'm compassionate. I'll receive you back. If you will return to me with all your heart and all of your soul. That is amazing, right? Lord, we'll pick up Wednesday. Uh, God bless. God somebody.